Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with author Jason Sanford. Mr. Sanford is the author of a number of short stories, essays, and articles. He has a particular interest in the life and works of Gustav Hasford, a writer whose groundbreaking book, The Short Timers, was adapted into Kubrick's film, Full Metal Jacket. Well, I'm, uh, I was born and raised in Alabama. Um, I'm a science fiction writer. Primarily, I also am an editor, uh, but because I have a southern background, I uh, started a literary journal called Story South that focused on uh, southern literature. Mm. And then, uh, so that's one reason uh, my interest with uh, Gustav uh, Hasford came in. But like I said, mainly I write these days science fiction and fantasy. Um, mm. I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say on that, you know. I have a short collection of short stories that's out there called Never Never Stories. I've been a finalist for the Nebula Award. Um, you know, been done a lot of other stuff in my life, was Peace Corps volunteer and other things. So it's kind of the hmm. guess that's it in a nutshell, so to speak. Well, you're you you being primarily a writer of science fiction. Correct. Uh, what was the attraction to 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 Gustav and his well, work? Uh, well, Gustav, uh, well, first of all, like I said, there's that Southern connection. Um, but also, he was really active in science fiction and fantasy circles during the 70s. Um, hmm. In fact, while he was working on uh, the novel that became The Short Timers, um, it was actually, in earlier drafts, uh, had elements of, uh, of fantasy in it, um, which I can talk about more when we get, you know, in a minute. So... You know, there's a there's a connection. He's from my home state. Uh, there's also the fact that he's tied in with science fiction and fantasy community. Uh, and in third, he's just he's a fascinating character as an author. I mean, yeah. He, you know, his life story, in some ways, is his biggest story, and it's a tragic one. And you know, as an author, as a writer, it resonates with me. Mm. Did you did you have ever have encounters with him? No, I did not. I'm afraid I'm, you know, it's sad to say I really I didn't learn about him. Um, I mean, I'd seen Full Metal Jacket uh, when it originally came out in the 80s, but I didn't learn about him and his writings until after he was dead. Okay, so your really your first introduction to anything having to do with him was the film. Correct, correct. Yeah. It was indeed. Um, and then you know uh, I remember. Uh, I've seen uh, Full Metal Jacket many times. As, you know, as I'm sure I'm sure people you're talking to about Stanley Kubrick's uh, films, they say this over and over. I've seen these films many, many times. Well, I've seen this film over and over and over. And and at one point, I, I, I you know, I was like, well, I'm going to check out the novel it was uh, based on. And uh, from there, I wanted to learn more about uh, Gustav's life. And um, you know, um, it just is like I said, it's a tragic story. I mean. You know, he he really wanted to be a larger than life author, and it, it didn't work out how he planned. Mm. Well, did, did he write? He just wrote something like three books, didn't he? 
That's correct. He, his first novel was The Short Timers, that, uh, which was made uh, into the film. Uh, he then wrote a sequel, uh, The Phantom Blooper, which was uh, in same characters, carried it forward. And he did intend this to be uh, the second of a trilogy. So he was planning to do a trilogy based around these characters in the story. And uh, then he also wrote a, uh, a detective novel. Uh, what was it called? The uh, I think A Gypsy Good Time. And he kind of implied that he was writing that for the money so he could pursue uh, more serious pursuits. And he also planned to do a series of five of those detective novels, but um, then unfortunately he died at a you know at the rather young age of forty five, and that was the end of it. Mm. So, so the, the short timers uh, is is his account of of being involved in the in the Vietnam War conflict. Um, what distinguishes it from other such accounts? Well, first of all, uh, I mean it's. People like to call it semi-autobiographical, and it is indeed. I mean, um, Gustav went through his whole life saying, I am not Joker, I am not Joker. But there is a very strong autobiographical element in the novel. In some ways, he is Joker. Um, you know, he served in Vietnam. He was a uh, in the Marine Corps. He served as a correspondent for Stars and Stripes, uh, very much like uh, the, the, type, the character I'm just referring to. You know, he went over there. He actually um, was assigned to stateside duty on a newspaper. Uh, didn't like it. He wanted to go and basically, in some ways, test his manhood by going to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was sent over uh, just in time. Uh, he spent time there during the Tet Offensive. And, you know, I can't tell you how closely his personal experiences related to what he uh, wrote about in uh, in the novel, but... You know, it it does feel very much like, you know, he was taking a lot of what he saw and working it into fiction. Right. You know, it's it, when I think of why, I'm always fascinated by why Kubrick chose certain projects. And, and I, I think I remember a quote when he was asked about what he liked about this material in the short timers. He was He talked about the very spare writing style of it. Uh, that he felt like he could fill, because he would do that. He, he would take he would take a work, uh, but he would kind of fill it with all of his own stuff, so that the the actual film didn't very closely resemble the the source material at the end. Uh, I mean, very did, are they are they they're two different experiences? The book and the film for you? Uh, they they are indeed in some ways, um, you know, and. and you can see that in what you're the type of writing in the first part. The novel, I should say, I guess what I should get to is, is based around three different segments, three different stories within. Um, the the book, the film, is kind of, is very faithful for, to the first part of the uh, novel, which deals with the boot camp. Um, the second part and third part of the novel were condensed and changed somewhat for the to become the second part of the film. During that first part of the novel, what you're talking about is very true. I mean, it's a very staccato type of writing. It's like bam, 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 bam. It's like artillery fire, like a gunshot over and over and over. Short, descriptive. This is the way it is. Boom, 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 boom. But then in the second part of the novel, it gets more complex, the writing style. And then in the third part, it's even more complex. You know, so it's... In that case, 
you know, I, I wonder if that's actually one reason why uh, Kubrick uh, didn't, you know, exactly adapt the second and third parts. He kind of took his own a lot of liberties with it because maybe he couldn't uh, read into what he wanted. Hmm. Well, part of what makes both the the novel and the film special is that portrayal of the of the boot camp section. I mean oh, that yeah. that feels that feels really kind of fresh, certainly in in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and having not read the novel yet, I have it on order. I'm I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to get it to me so I can read it. But yeah. it, it, it is it is it very. Um, you just described the style of it, but is it visceral? I mean, does it really give you a visceral feel of what that experience is like in boot camp? It, it does indeed. It does indeed. Um, you know, and I have to put the caveat out there. I have not gone through a Marine Corps boot camp. So, but, um, you know, when you're reading it, you feel, I mean, it's very, it's very visceral. It's very in your face, slamming you over and over. Um, I think a lot of people, I think that's why, you know, you, you start reading that and you can't put it down. Now, mm-hmm. there have been... Um, I, you know, you need to know that Gustav had his own view of what he went through, and he was telling it in his story, and not everybody agreed with it. Uh, during the making of uh, Full Metal Jacket, I remember there was, uh, you know, the, um, the actor who did uh, uh, Sergeant Hartman, uh, Lee uh, Ermey, I may be saying his last name incorrectly, um, no, that's right. Kubrick evidently asked him, well, what do you think about this? And and about the novel, and he said, wow, you know, it was powerful, essentially. I'm summarizing. These aren't his exact words. He's like, it's very powerful. But he also said, basically, that boot camp stuff, while it's powerful, is was basically total bullshit. So <laughs> then, you know, he had a different view than Gustav did about boot camp. So, you know, it was different right. views of what, you know, you know, so, um, you know, but that doesn't mean it's not, it wasn't valid. It's very valid and very powerful. What is the sense you get on how the war, that whole experience, shaped him, Gustav? Well, you know that's uh, you know that's that's the big question about his life. Um, it w- I mean, it was I think no one would argue that it was the most important thing he ever did in his life, and it influenced everything afterwards in his life. And uh, he, uh, if he had a focus, you know, and you need to understand. Gustav really didn't, his life, he had trouble focusing. You know, he w- he was all over the place. He had a few things he loved a lot, and one of them was, um, you know, the sense of who he became as a result of going to war in Vietnam. Um, you know, he, you know, in some ways, you know, you know, it's maybe a cliche to say he was haunted by that. Um, I really couldn't speak to that. You know, he really hated what the war was. Um, he was adamantly opposed to uh, what the United States did in Vietnam, and often remarked that he was glad the Vietnamese had won. Um, so obviously, you know, he went through experiences that you know did not sit right with him. But I can't, you know, he also his true friends for life were the other war correspondents in the Marine Corps and in, uh, that he had met during his service there. I mean, they they formed a bond and a clique that you know, never wavered, and even uh, even after his death. Um, I've, you know, some of the accounts I've read said that when they still get together, they have an empty bottle, uh, they have a beer sitting there for him because they miss him. So, wow. I mean, it, this, it, it really influenced his life. And, you know, 
it's a shame that he he died so young. But in some ways, you know, his and we can talk about that. He you know he died because he 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 let he let his life go. Hmm. I I do want to I do want to talk about that. Um, but but first, in terms of when his his book was was optioned by Kubrick. Uh, I mean Kubrick. Kubrick has a history of not involving the authors in the adaptations, did, but he tried to involve Gustav in this one, didn't he? Oh, absolutely, he did. Um, and uh, it, it literally drove both of them crazy. I, mean, <laughs> they, uh, I believe it was about five years before the movie came out um, in 1982. Um, Gustav gets a call from Stanley Kubrick. And he's excited. Uh, see, I think he he, he t- later told one of his friends that he was just in awe of the man. And he said the only thing that kept him going is that he, uh, Gustav said, I, "I am so conceited, I wouldn't let myself be, you know, all, overawed by uh, by speaking to the man." But you know, they evidently had long conversations. I mean, hours and hours of talking on the phone. And then you know, then you know, then working together as they, you know, on the film, um, there was definitely a love-hate relationship. There are times when Gustav hated uh, Kubrick, and Kubrick. Uh, I think there's a great, great quote. Um, I, yeah, I think what he, I, to, I got that written down somewhere. What he say? Uh, I can't stand the man, or something like that. Or I can't remember the exact quote, but basically, definitely. Uh, not work the relationship did not work out but you know it i would yeah it was highly uh involved and back and forth i i think it's probably just the the kind of the clashing of two very strong particular personalities <laughs> very true and and yeah. you do need to know i love gustav's writing um his life story like i said it resonates with me and i know his friends are very loyal to him but mm-hmm. to be very crude and blunt, he sounds like an asshole. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He was a. He could be a, the biggest jerk. He was, you know, conceited, full of himself, stubborn as hell. You know, he never got his high school diploma, not because he didn't finish all the coursework, but he felt that the Alabama school system was evidently so bad that he did not want to stain deem it to be legitimate by taking the actual diploma. And this is, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about someone as a high school senior made that decision, so he never got his diploma. And I also feel that, you know, he, I think he felt that in some ways, uh, and this is a characteristic you have a lot of, uh, comes up a lot of time in Southern men of his generation and before, is when he went out into the larger world, he felt, I think, a bit of, uh, that he wasn't, he, uh, how do you say it, he, he, while he believed in himself, himself, and he believed he could do what he could do, and he would, and that he knew what he knew, he he had an inferiority complex in some ways compared to, you know, the establishment, the literary establishment, and and people like Kubrick, you know. So mm. I think all of that played into it. So yes, he could be a jerk, and he would deliberately go to Kubrick. You know, he would, you know, evidently he he, you know, he bragged his friends, I. I told him that, you know, the movie was never going to come out, you know, because they took so long on it. You know, I think he once teased Kubrick saying, hey, you like to do everything on the films. Why don't you, maybe you could one day sell the tickets to the film, you know, which, you know, stuff like that, just to be a jerk. <laughs> and, and believe me, I'm not saying that 
I'm sure it was going both ways, if you know what I mean. Yes. Well, to be fair, I, there there were a lot of people that viewed Kubrick in exactly the same terms that you just described the view of Gustav. So uh, okay. th- that. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the cla- they're so they probably clashed over how they were similar in personality uh, more than anything else. Poetic justice, the universe brought them together. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, um, in some ways, by bringing them together, I think in the long run, it, uh, Kubrick uh, came out fine of the out of the relationship. He was just fine, but Gustav did not uh, come out of this uh, experience very well. Was it was it an exchange? I think I remember reading something that you wrote. Was it an exchange at dinner, or something that was the last straw? And Michael Hare was there. That was the last time Gustav and Kubrick really spoke. I don't think I wrote that. That anecdote. Uh, there's so many of them, and <laughs> I do know one thing that was a breaking point for uh, the two was. Uh, Kubrick wanted to give him a screenwriting credit of, quote, additional dialogue, mm. which uh, Gustav, his famous quote is, those fuckers retyped my novel and they tried to put their names on it. And, mm. you know, there is some, he has a good case on that. I mean, some of the best dialogue and stuff did come straight from his novel. You know, but, so it's not fair to say that, you know, all he contributed to the the film was quote additional dialogue, and eventually you know he tried he sued Kubrick and Kubrick gave him you know screenwriting credit and all full credit and all that kind of stuff with the others. So, but but it was that whole uh, situation that really uh, soured it. I think for Kubrick, you know the fact that Gustav just kept coming back to them over and over wouldn't stop. You know perhaps mm. like you're saying, Kubrick treated other people like this. Well, here was a ex. Marine, a Vietnam War uh, hero, who basically was like, and 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 Gustav was not a small man either. <laughs> you know, we're not talking. He was a big man. Here's a man who's basically like, you know what? I'm going to keep coming at you until you give me what I want. And uh, so I think that got under Kubrick's uh, skin, and it definitely got under Gustav's. So, the, the having Kubrick make a a, a film out of your book. I mean, that seems like it would be a life-changing proposition for any author. But but after Full Metal Jacket came out, by the sound of it, uh, there was a lot of bitterness and and really Gustav didn't benefit necessarily from that film. No. um, Unfortunately, well, he did. I mean, mean, before we say no, he did not benefit. I mean, we're talking right now about his novel, which yeah. will not be forgotten because of this movie. And that doesn't mean the novel didn't stand on its own. On its own. It sure does. But it, he, this film ensured that people would not forget this novel, that it will keep coming back over and over. Um, and as a result of the film, uh, Gustav landed a, he was able to publish the sequel, The, the Phantom Blooper. Um, and he... he he thought he was going to benefit a lot more from the movie, which he ended up not. And we'll talk about some of the reasons in a minute. But part of it was I think he was unfortunately naive about how Hollywood worked. Uh, part of the – and this is this caused him a lot of anger later in his life, a few years later. Um, part of the – finally, when he got uh, Kubrick to give him 
a better deal and give him screenwriting credit. Uh, Kubrick, and, I, and you know Kubrick was laughing about this, he gave Gustav a, a percentage of the profits on the movie. Well, you and I both know, and anybody who studies Hollywood knows, no Hollywood movie ever has a profit. <laughs> you know, That's but true. Gustav thinks this is going to help. I mean, he's always he's always struggled with money. Um, yeah. He's never really been able to pull in. You know, he's always had to work. You know, scrounge to make the money to make spend. Then when he can, so he can have time to write. So he thinks that this is going to give him a million and two dollars when the movie comes. It gives mm. him nothing. So that's part of his, you know, he feels like he got screwed on that. And then when his uh, his uh, sequel came out, it didn't do very well. And uh, even when the movie came out, uh, the sales of his of uh, the short timers didn't really pick up. Although he had he was butting heads at that point with his publishers, they wanted to retitle it when the movie came out uh, at Full Metal Jacket, the novel, so that mm. it would have more sales. And he refused to do that. So. Yet again, it, part of it, like I said, he was a very stubborn man, and uh, in some ways, all you know, he just who he was was not able to accept, uh, was not able to deal with uh, and move on to a more successful career at that point. Mm. And he he passed at a forty-five. I mean, just less than six years after the movie. Yeah, so exactly. I mean, in fact, in fact, I think it's five years, something like that. And I can kind of look at it. He spent five years building up to the movie, and then five years crashing. And like I said, he, his, his story is so is, is just a tragic story for him, especially as a writer, to look at it. Um, he was a big book collector. He loved books. I mean, the word bibliophile doesn't begin to explain all that he was. He had a, a collection of 10,000-plus books that he stored. You know, these were books he loved, books for research, books that he just couldn't part with. Unfortunately, quite a number of the books were stolen from libraries around the country and in other parts of the world. So eventually, the police uh, they arrested him, and he went on trial, and he had to spend uh, six months in the county jail because he stole all these uh, library books. And uh, even there, he felt like the powers that be were coming after him un- unjustifiably. You know, even though most of us would go, "Dude, you stole library books." So, you know, I don't, I mean, we're not talking about failure to return library books. We're talking, you know, he was stealing from all over the place. So, but that was part of it. He just loved books that much. He couldn't part with them. So I understand that. I mean, that was how he was. Then he gets out of the, uh, he gets out of jail and he's obsessed that he's going to clear his name. He's going to, he thinks, he tells his friends he's going to write books maybe like, you know, a trilogy or something like that about how he was unjustly prosecuted and imprisoned, mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. His friends are like, Gustav, you just need to move on. Just write your books. This will be forgotten. It's not a big deal, but he couldn't let it go. Um, mm-hmm. He writes a detective novel I told you about. Then uh, he decides to move to uh, a Greek island. So he's living in a cheap hotel in Greece, and he thinks it's going to make him more creative. Instead, all he does is drink over and over and over. He has diabetes at this time. He doesn't take his medicine, and he dies in an anonymous hotel room in, on a Greek island at age 45. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's a shame. Hmm. I mean, you know, and I don't know if, you know, maybe if he had gotten his million dollars from the, you know, from 
from the movie rights and everything, his life would have been changed. I don't know if it would have. You know, he was who he was, and I don't know if he could have changed. Yeah. When you talk about what you know of him, I mean, where does that come from? Did and did you seek out people that knew him that worked with him? And well, there's uh, there's some great uh, there's I don't want to oh, mess up the name. Uh, one of Gustav's cousins, and I can't remember his name right now. I'm blanking on it, unfortunately. Wrote a great essay about him. Um, which you can find online. Uh, is Jason Aaron was the uh, cousin's name. Um, okay. Wrote in, basically he went and interviewed all the you know all the friends that knew Gustav and traveled around. He's basically wanting to revive his uh, his cousin's name, who I agree was unjustly forgotten as a writer. So he has written, he wrote this amazing essay covering his cousin's life. You know the you know the film, all of this, and you know anybody who's fascinated in, about this needs to go look up this essay. Uh, if you if you uh, Google uh, Gustav Hasper's name, uh, his cousin maintained website, um, and you can read the essay there. They also have the uh, you can read the book online. Um, go check it out. And I have communicated some with his cousin uh, when I wrote my little short essay about uh, the author. Uh, his you know cousin emailed saying, "Oh, I appreciate this. This is really nice." And, you know, it's just, you know, it's a shame he's been forgotten. But, uh, you know, so stuff yeah. like this, it kind of keeps him alive. Well, absolutely. And, and it's a shame that for, for him and for us that he he didn't reach a place in his life where he could, could have produced more. Right. You know. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Is I, I agree with that. I wish he hadn't been able to reach that point where he could have produced more. And then sometimes I think, okay, I think that's the lesson of his life story is even if he had reached that place, he had so many self-destructive ten- tendencies, I'm not sure he could have produced more. Mm. You know, and, and that's what really resonates as a writer is you think, is that how, you know, is that how we are? Is that, you know, is there just a, you know, you know, we all, you know, every creative person thinks, wow, if only I could do this, I could be so much more creative. If only mm. I could you know, have the time to write or to paint or to sing or whatever. I could be so much more creative, but perhaps, you know, who we are, that's never going to happen, and you just get the creativity that comes through your life as it is, and that's the end of it. You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Well, yeah, the world of artists and and writers, a lot of writers in particular, I mean, they're, they're characterized by their kind of, their insecurities and their, and their, uh, they're kind of tragic lives in a way, right. and it, and most of it is self. A lot of it is self-inflicted, you know. Oh, absolutely, like, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, but Gustav also had the ability to take it and keep going, and that that's something I really admire. For example, I, I mentioned that he was uh, in the seventies. He really was associated with science fiction and fantasy circles. Um, he wasn't publishing science fiction and fantasy at that time, but he was trying to become a science fiction and fantasy writer. He attended, there's a well-known um, science fiction workshop called Clarion. He attended that um, in uh, early 70s, very early 70s. And his instructor was one of the most famous, is, still is, one of the most famous science fiction writers of all time, Harlan Ellison. Um, huh. Harlan Ellison is known as a very tough critic. And also, he can, and I find this interesting, I think this tells you something about the 
people who keep coming in and out of Gustav's lives, Harlan Ellison can be a bit of an asshole. <laughs> well, well. So uh, Gustav is at the uh, the conference. You know, he's taking. You know, for this, you turn in your story, and and the big famous author is going to critique it. What Gustav Gustav doesn't know is that every time Harlan Ellison does one of these clarion workshops, he he picks out one writer whose story sucked, and he proceeds to tear up the story in front of the whole class, throw it at the writer, and tell him, "You need to never write again. Get out of the business." He's doing this as an object lesson, but while Harlan Ellison, that yes, that makes him seem like an asshole, he's not a total asshole because he only picks on the writers he thinks can take it. So, you know, if he sees, you know, someone who's frail is going to fall pieces and kill themselves over that criticism, he's not going to do that to him. Gustav has said, okay, this guy can take it. So he does it to him. Tears up the story, throws it at him, hits him with her. You know, says, you'll never be a writer, get out of the business. Okay, well, you know, how would, I mean... You know, I, as a writer, I'd, I'd probably have to kill Harlan Ellison for that. But funny thing is, like two years later, Gustav is living in California doing his writing, and guess who his roommate is? Harlan Ellison. He's living with Harlan Ellison. Wow. Um, and when, the, when he, uh, Gustav eventually came out with his novel, uh, his first novel, Harlan Ellison, justifiably, praised it up the wazoo, saying it was amazing. So, mm. you know, there's, you know, it's, I find, you know, stuff like that. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. I love that. Yeah, and it's all. It also speaks to, you know, they say if you want to be uh, a creative artist in any way, whether it's an actor or a writer or whatever it is, you do it uh, because you have to. Right. And 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 that sounds like that's a test of, you know, you're you're not going to quit if you if you quit. That means you were never meant to be a writer, to, you know, to begin with. Oh, very true, very true. And um, yeah. I'm trying to see if uh, Gustav had this quote. Uh, I'm I'm horrible at giving quotes off the top of my head, so I'm not going to try. But basically, <laughs> he okay. he basically said, "Writing is hard. You know, writing is not fun and easy. You know, it's painful. But like you're saying, you know, you have to do it. You know. So yeah, I mean, he would agree with that. And you know, the funny thing is, he came his route to reaching. Um, you know, the short-timers, is fascinating because he evidently, it was a, he, parts of the short-timers were folded into a novel that had werewolves and other stuff in it. Uh, like I said, he was in science fiction and fantasy circles. And one of the, uh, when he was living with Harlan Ellison and one of the writers who was critiquing him said, basically, you've got a great novel here, but you need to take it out of all this other stuff. And he did. And he worked on this novel for seven or more years. I mean, you know, it was a long process. It was not easy, but you know what came out of it is amazing. Mm. So, in in terms of the film, uh, before I let you go, I want to get your your take on the film itself because there there were a couple of Vietnam War films prior uh, right. to Full Metal Jacket in Platoon and Apocalypse and Deer Hunter, uh, right. and there have been many, many since. So what right. distinguishes Full Metal Jacket for you as a film from those? I think it's filled up uh, perfectly, uh, while some of the other ones have not. Deer Hunter, to my, to my opinion, is you cannot watch it anymore. Um, you know, in my opinion, it's, 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 it is like pulling teeth to watch it now. Apocalypse Now is uh, still a great film, um, but it's in some ways not truly a Vietnam War movie. 
Um, it is a large a movie about larger issues that just happen to be set during the Vietnam War. Full Metal Jacket is, you know, is perfect. In what it is, it is perfect. And, you know, I, I don't think that's going to change. If you watch it, you know, 70, 80, 100 years from now, it's still going to have the power. You know, it's going to be a, it's going to be of its time, of course, but it captured that time perfectly. Um, and a lot of the movies those, that came out of the Vietnam War, you can't say that about. Right. Did you like it right away? I mean, from the first time you saw it? I did. I did indeed, yes. Um, I mean, I was 17 or so when it came out. Um, you know, it blew me away. I was like, wow, yeah. you know, so... And then as I, you know, as I grew older, I realized, you know, there's more depth to it. There's more than, you know, than just, you know, what I first saw. And, you know, that's what you want in a good movie, a great movie. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and that characterizes all Kubrick movies for me. I mean, even those that I watch and I'm like, why well, I didn't quite like that. And then, then I'll go back to it. And there's, there's, there's no director alive that has the rewatchability of a Kubrick, right. <laughs> because you feel like there's so much to find in all of his right. movies, you know. Well, um, so that makes him timeless. Absolutely, and I'm going to say this um, as a science fiction writer, um, I can honestly say I would not be a science fiction writer without Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Um, mm. I'm one of the rare people. I actually prefer Arthur C. Clarke's novelization of 2001 to the film. I think they're both great. But I can easily, I kind of prefer the novelization. But the reason I'm a science fiction writer is because that novel and that movie resonated so much with me. Um, yeah. You know, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be writing science fiction without it. Now, I'm not, I know, I'm not, I'm not an ignorant person. I know Stanley Kubrick was not primarily a science fiction filmmaker. You know, but the truth is that movie resonated more with me than all the quote-unquote science fiction films out there. Star mm. Wars. I enjoy Star Wars. Hey, great. Yeah. Um, you know, the Star Trek movies, all that kind of stuff. They're fun and everything. But 2001, both in the novel, which was, you know, it was a circular process with Clark working on the story as Kubrick worked on it and, you know, kind of feeding back on each other. That novel and that film showed that you could touch on things that are almost eternal in scope with fiction, and that's what inspires me, and that's what gets me going. That's exactly what how I feel about it, too. I mean, I, that movie can never age because we'll never stop asking, you know, where where did we come from? What's what's right. the reason for, for us to be, and what is our next evolution? I mean, where are we going from here? You know, those are eternal questions, just like you said, so how could the movie age? That's what the movie's about. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, and so, for that alone, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Kubrick. But then, you know, the fact that he, every type of film he makes is, almost every film he makes is a classic, you know, even in different, quote, genres, that thrills me as a writer. You know, that means you don't have to be just a science fiction writer. You don't have to be just a literary writer or a war writer, a, you know, a mystery writer or anything like that. It means that if you can be a great storyteller, you know, you'll find your stories. 